Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. For me, finding hope in the environmental narrative is so necessary. Not because I think we should be blindly optimistic, but, but because I think we should feel like things can be saved. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 60 with Cal Flynn. Cal is a writer and journalist who lives in the Orkney Islands off the north coast of Scotland. Her latest book explores a dozen or so places around the world and looks at how nature reclaims and rebounds after humans leave. In this episode, we talk about the subjects contained within the book and explore the connection that humans have to abandoned spaces as well as the concept of jolly lad, or ugly beautiful, and how awe and wonder can be found in bleak and desolate landscapes. Um, big apologies for the audio quality of both microphones on this one, but particularly mine. Uh, both Cal and I recorded this into our computers via an online app. Usually I record with an external mic from home, but with this episode I didn't, and that was an error. Um, we're putting some plans in place to up the quality of these recordings, uh, even when they're done online. But anyway, that's enough of the disclaimers, um, so we'll get started. Over to Carl Flynn. I guess a good place to start would be if you could talk about who you are, what you do, where you live and what your life has been like, I suppose. Sure. Um, so I'm Cal Flynn. Um, I'm a writer and a journalist. I live in the Orkney Islands, which are off the north coast of Scotland. Um, I've been working for the last few years in a book called Islands of Abandonment. Um, the subtitle is Life in the Post-Human Landscape. And what that means is that I've been sort of traveling around the world to 13 abandoned places um, because I'm interested in like the ecology and the psychology of these places. So what happens after humans leave and uh, how wildlife comes to rebound or, or somehow take over these sites that, that, that we've left behind. Um, so I've been working on that for a few years um, and my new book just came out. Um, I'm really excited about it. And it, it, it's really great because uh, I think people are also interested in this narrative of sort of it's almost like redemption stories i think these places um a lot of them have been really badly polluted they're sort of ravaged some of them are post-industrial sites some of them are are, are, are war sites or, or certainly no man's lands um that kind of place and and i think to to hear what happens um after that and how things can in the end recover given the passage of time and given natural processes is um is a story that I think seems to be sort of moving people. 
but I, I, I think it's also, you know, I'm, I'm interested in how these places make, make us feel as well. I guess that's what I'm getting at when I say the psychology of abandoned places. So like, why are we drawn to them and also repulsed, repulsed by them in sort of equal measure? Yeah, that's very interesting. Okay, so how do you get, did you grow up on Otney? No, I grew up near Inverness. So it's not so far as a crow flies, I think a hundred and something miles, maybe a hundred miles. Um, but it feels like a completely different landscape. You know, there's there's not really, there aren't really trees here. So it's very windswept. It's very coastal. Whereas where I was, it's very highland, you know. Yeah. So how do you go from growing up in Inverness to eventually living on Orkney and then traveling around the world to look at abandoned places? by way of uh, lots of different places it's, it's sort of funny to me that I've ended up being really close to where I grew up because it would have horrified 17 year old me who was just so ready to get the hell out of there you know you're so um I think when you're like a rural teenager often you're just like champing at the bit and so I went to, to India for a year after school and then I went to university in England and then I lived in London for a long time um, working as a reporter for national newspapers which was fun I think it wasn't um, wasn't quite my sort of it didn't suit my personality um, but it taught me so much and and it taught me a lot about um, I guess persistence and sort of doggedness and you know that, that things that I wasn't very good at to begin with um, it's very very challenging to be a news reporter because you're just constantly you know on it all the time and you have to be like ready to ask awkward questions and all of that kind of thing so that that was good training for me because I, otherwise I, I sort of beat around the bush a little bit and then uh, I lived in Edinburgh and then I've come oh and I lived in the Lake District for a bit so yeah I don't know around and about <laughs> yeah you definitely had done some traveling um so what's life like outside of traveling the world and wandering through abandoned space um, it's pretty quiet. I guess everyone is is experiencing my kind of normal life at the moment because um, I work from home. I'm a full time writer, um, and I live yeah with my partner in Orkney. So we have a dog which I adopted. Um, she's a former sled dog. We worked together in the north of Finland back in. 2012 2013 I did a winter season working for a place called Heta Huskies which is amazing um so she was one of the dogs that I really bonded with they had I think about 130 dogs in one place and then 80 dogs in another more sort of remote spot so that was quite an intense winter and I really bonded with this dog so when she retired she's come to live with us so we do a lot of walking together <laughs> that's so wonderful <laughs> god that's amazing okay and then um, you're a wild swimmer right that must be an interesting hobby in Orkney. Yeah, it's really popular up here, actually. So um, when I lived in Edinburgh, I saw a few people wild swimming, but quite often, you know, like people would stop on the beach to watch. Whereas here is like people are bored by it. And I'm really not an extreme person because there's just people who do it all the time and quite extreme, you know. So um, it's been really lovely to be surrounded by lots of people who also quite like the cold um and I suppose the warming up again after but it's a great way to to I say start your day it's a horrible way to start your day I prefer to do it in the afternoon when I'm sort of warm <laughs> and then uh you know get my core temperature up during the day and then have a good plunge um maybe even in the evening but a lot of people like to start their day with it yeah ace no it, it feels like a very romantic notion to me so, and I, which actually I suppose could end up being a theme I think I have lots of romantic views about things that you have thought about much more cerebrally than me um but 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you live a very adventurous and fulfilled life. I suppose is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we like it. So um, yeah, no, we're we're having a good time, and uh, we moved up to the islands. Just um, my partner retrained as a teacher. And um, so he worked in a primary school here. We were sort of allocated his job up here. So we thought we'd give it a go. In Scotland, you you get to choose five local authorities. And uh, we were planning to go rurally anyway. Um, and the local authorities are huge. So by the time you give five rural authorities, that's like half the country. You really don't know where you're going. So we got posted up to Orkney. And it's it's been a complete joy, actually, that people are super friendly here so I think we're we're definitely here you know medium term we're, we're we've got no plans to leave again now we're here. Do you feel as though you're connected to that place outside of it just being you know the country that you're from? Oh that's a really interesting question I feel very much like that about the highlands because I don't know I do think like the place where you grew up especially if you're kind of an outdoorsy child it's really like in your soul you know and so like I have that very like visceral response to the the landscape of the highlands especially when you get a little bit west and um yeah there's no trees there but it's it's very rugged and often in autumn you get these wonderful rust red colors and then the sort of acid greens of of grass and birch and yeah the the in winter you get these sort of burgundy I don't know this it does something to me you know I love that place and and these very rugged um coastlines and orkney has been sort of interesting because it's so close and yet it feels so different and i'm only just beginning to feel at home in it i think because you can look out and on some days you're like this is the most beautiful place i've ever seen i can see why you know painters come here to do landscapes you know everything is smooth clean lines it's all low it's sort of low drama but beautiful colors and it's all about the sky and the water but it's um on a bad day it can feel really bleak you know when everything's gray and everything's sort of um I don't know it can feel a bit flat and and so I'm only just getting my head around it you know it's actually a farming area you know we've I've, I've gone more remote I suppose depending on what your your definition is but um it, it feels more worked because it's a farming area so everywhere's fields um, and I think I'm I'm beginning to sort of develop an affinity for the place, but um, it's ta- it's taken a while, you know. I think it always does when you move new places. Yeah, definitely. And you've mentioned a couple of times you've said, "Oh, there's no trees there." <laughs> Why is that? Oh, it's just really, really windy. <laughs> so, the, so the winter is. Um, uh, yeah, actually, we've had a we've had a reasonably mild winter, but you you basically have to be ready to batten down the hatches at any moment, even in winter in in summer. Um, so it can be extremely windy. It's quite difficult to get a lot of stuff to grow here unless it's protected. There are a few bits where there are trees, but really nothing that um, you would call a, a forest. You know, sort of small between. Um, I guess in like very tight valleys, there's sort of strips of trees. Um, and sometimes I go there to sort of, I don't know, breathe in a little bit when when that, that sort of openness can sometimes feel a little bit oppressive. But other days you're just like, oh, why would anyone be anywhere else? This is incredible. I can see from miles. Yeah. It, I mean, you know, I, you're really kind of grabbing hold of a lot of things I, I enjoy here, but is bleak okay sometimes? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And, uh, you know, I think I'd go further north for sure. I mean... Finland in the winter it's it's quite flat and when it was you know all the lakes are frozen so it can 
be just a massive expanse, you know, with, with trees and then these flat, empty spaces. And um, I found that very engaging. I don't know. I think I think it can be nice to be surrounded by a landscape, you know, of <laughs> almost of the mind. You know, if you're somewhere that is very atmospheric, very evocative, just to be in a place can really deeply affect you. And so, um, yeah, I, 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 I enjoy it here. And I think we be very happy to keep sort of moving north and north and north and see see where that sweet spot is yeah okay so i mean i guess almost just as a method of exploring all of these themes and ideas can you go into detail on the premise and concept and messaging of the book i guess sure um so islands of abandonment uh as i mentioned before it's um 12 or 13 locations um, if you include the introduction, um, each of which kind of emblematizes to me a different aspect of this question of abandonment, like what happens next. Um, so the majority of it, I'm looking at um, environmental consequences, like how does nature rebound? How does it grow? How does it reclaim? So to begin with, I talk about processes of succession, which um, you might have studied in school, but uh, certainly it's the way that sort of vegetation grows on on open ground. Um, and starting with primary succession, which is when there's no soil. So you might see this in cases of like volcanic islands in my examples, which are um, sort of anthropogenic environments, as I, I, I call them. Um, this would be places like spoil heaps, um, coal tips, um, that kind of thing. You know, even even cement, you know, concrete um, buildings that slowly become sort of taken over by things. Um so what, what I found interesting about that was the way that natural processes are, you know, it's the same processes acting on, on human elements. And, and um, I think uh, we flatter ourselves often that, that what we've done to the earth is, is something very unique. But actually, you know, it's, uh, we're, we're a natural force that works upon the world as, as well, I suppose. And, and so I was interested in how plants come to regrow, rebound and so on. In, in other um, locations for example in the zone rouge in france where um there have been there's a spot where chemical weapons were burnt in the forest and now nothing can grow there it's, it's very high levels of things like arsenic um i think by weight um arsenic compounds are something like 17 percent of the soil in this area and um, it's just like this like burnt patch of ash in the middle of the forest um with this little forestry hut on it um because actually the for, for years foresters were like using it as like a nice open um a gap in the forest um so they'd they'd sit in the this little cabin and have their lunch and so on and then sort of at their feet is all this like lead and arsenic and the remains of chemical weapons um but that's slowly being uh slowly being sort of uh i don't know reabsorbed into the earth i mean it's it's being grown over by kinds of plants that can survive in these toxic environments there aren't many of them but they are really interesting um some of them like one or two of them are just sort of normal looking plants so in fact ones that we know so um i think camp camping can do it certain types of grass can can grow where there are high levels of salt or metal but then there are other plants which they call hyper accumulators and um what they do is they grow in places of for example metal and uh, then they suck it up into their bodies and they start accumulating it and so um, they're called things like nickel plants or um, they used to use them for something called uh, geo geo prospecting 
um, which is you if you were mining, you could look for certain plants that only grow where, for example, copper grows. And then if you see them, and if you see like a whole lot of them, you could just dig down there and find the copper. So um, they, you can find that like in Zambia, there's the copper belt and there's a whole um, a sort of ecosystem of, of plants that grow in copper there. And in fact, you can sort of navigate by, um, you can find like the contours of, of the metal below the ground by which plants are where, you know, they paint a sort of map because some like it really high and others like it only a little bit. So I was really fascinated by those. Um, and uh, the, the, that's going to be transferred, I, I have to say, extended into there's a, a field, which I just touch on in the book called um, Geo Prospecting. No, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a field that that extends into in which basically you um, it's called phyto mining and you harvest the plants, you burn the plants, they're full of metal and um, then you're left with metal at the end and plant ash. And so it's it's kind of still a concept. It's quite hard to make it work on large enough scale. But um, in theory, this could be, you know, farmers making more much more money from harvesting, for example, lead than um, they might do from just growing barley on a normal field. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I got really, really into that, as you can tell. Um, I guess it's all these sort of plant superpowers um, that I became fascinated by. And then later on, I think one thing that you have to be um, careful about when you start um, talking about abandoned places um, is this sort of idea of ruin porn, like the aesthetics of, of ruination and abandoned places. And I was really careful or I wanted to be really careful to um, not to sort of decontextualize these places because often, especially when I was talking about things like um, the, the the carbon impact of, of pandemics in the past. So um, I, I started looking at this by um, looking at the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is a bit different, but, but the effect of that has been that there is huge amounts of abandoned farmland that had been under collective farm ownership and is now regrowing. And this is an enormous sort of man-made carbon sink that is happening um, right now, and it's on a huge scale. So I use that to look at other cases in the past, and often that's been linked to pandemics, like huge, huge die-offs, basically, of, of humans, um, or major wars. Um, so like when Genghis Khan was sort of racing across Eurasia, you know, cutting down everyone in his path, um, that also had a, an impact on the atmosphere of the earth, um, just because of the, the number of, of deaths and the people who, who moved out of a certain area and the forest regrowth. Um, so, but the thing is, like, to talk about that, you have to be careful, because obviously, these are, are, are moments of, of huge tragedy. And um, uh, even today, you know, uh, I went to to Detroit and, you know, they can get, it, it depends who you talk to, but they can be a bit fed up with this idea of, you know, people swooping in, taking photos of like their neighbor's house and then swooping out again and often offering no context to it. So um, I've got a whole section on, um, I guess, why do people choose to remain in a place once it becomes deserted or semi-abandoned? Um, what impact does living in a neighborhood surrounded by abandoned houses have on people? Um, and you know why why do people seek out these places you know me among them and I, th and I think you too um, you, know, you feel very drawn to them um, I think my my theory is it's a sort of well I, I guess it's you know it's, it's risk-taking behavior um, but it's also tied up for me with um, 
like the experience of the natural world so I think like that idea of um, going into an enormous hall that is falling apart it, it gives you both a sense of of scale like physical scale but also the sense of like an enormous passage of time it makes you feel small and it brings you out of yourself and I think the same if you know if you climb to the top of an apartment building and you look out um you know it's something that uh affects you and it's something like the sublime that people talk about when they that they go seeking at the top of mountains um so to me i think these things are all really closely tied together you know that that's what we're looking for often in abandoned places and i spoke to some people who sort of hang out in in mill buildings in um in patterson new jersey which is in uh, america and they have like a complex of very wrecked um industrial buildings right at the heart of the city which are sort of fenced off but it's very easy to get in and um it's really on a huge scale um kind of beautiful in a, a really wrecked way you know like these burnt out collapsed buildings and a lot of homeless people unfortunately living there um because patterson does have economic problems a lot of drug taking um but also people go there out of choice you know um that they choose to drop out either temporarily or permanently and go somewhere where people don't bother them and I found a, a similar thing in Slab City which is not abandoned but it's um, built on an abandoned military base it's this idea of, of dropping out of society um, that's in California amazing so god where do I go <laughs> <laughs> I mean I okay I'm going to take it right back. And then I think there's so many themes that I'd love to explore in here. But where do you think your fascination with this idea from an ecological and an anthropological perspective comes from? Well, I've been doing a bit of nature writing for a few years. And um, partly that's because I live in a beautiful place full of seabirds and seals and so on. But I think um, it can feel doing that kind of thing like every so often it's just always so lovely lovely um and I guess I'm probably not that lovely lovely you know it's just um also I think that kind of stuff has often been written about before and perhaps better than I could do it you know by by extremely knowledgeable people who've lived here for a, a long time and and I I I love that but I guess I'm sort of looking for something new something a bit different and what I got really interested in not really on purpose but um I went to a place called the the called Easdale which is one of the slate islands this is off the west coast of Scotland um and they were like the world's biggest slate mines in the 19th century like really on a huge scale so all these islands were totally just like picked apart you know they're they're completely gouged with these deep quarries where they got got slate out of and they use pumps to keep the seawater out so they're they're almost like hollowed out islands um one of them is in the shape of a donut and the Easdale, which is a bigger one it's got these really huge very very deep um quarries on it and it's like much deeper than the island is wide um and then what happened was that the in the 18th century uh, sorry 19th century there was a huge storm and it broke the sea defenses it came in flooded all the quarries um, and though they started pumping it out, they never really recovered. And so they've got these enormous, um, incredibly coloured um, quarries on this very small island, um, which are all sorts of weird um, turquoises and aquamarines. And it's, it looks very unnatural. Um, and 
it's also kind of amazing. You know, we went there to visit because an artist friend of mine said that she'd um, painted there. And then I'd seen the, the paintings and I was like, cool, cool. I mean, it will be nice, but it won't look anything like that because these paintings are completely, you know, alien, just the colours of them and, and the, the weird shapes. Um, and then I got there and was like, oh, wow, you know, this place really looks like that. You know, it's got this sort of spine that goes up the middle of the island. There are a few cottages there, like the former workers' cottages, which um, some people some people live in them, I think, but they're mainly sort of holiday homes. They're very small. Um, and then beyond the sort of village green that they've got just as where, where you come in, it's just like this, you know, quarry after quarry, um, deep hole, they're all flooded. Um, and then there's these shoots of scree everywhere. Well, it's not scree, it's, it's like broken, rejected slates. But it's built this whole new landscape, like something out of a fantasy. Um, and it was all covered in like brambles and wildflowers were growing. We were there in the summer and we went wild swimming in one of the one of the deep quarries. In fact, they do a um, the stone skimming festival of the world is done there because the water's so still, you know. Um, so we um, went swimming there and I just kept thinking about it. And I wrote a piece about this place, about how it was a sort of, um, I call it like a joli lad landscape. So like the French con- concept of how to have like a really good fashion model. She needs something that sets her apart. It is not enough to be beautiful because everyone's beautiful or there are so many beautiful people but um she needs a sort of so usually that is like a pretty ugly so like the most famous fashion models would have too big eyes or their 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 eyes would be too closely set or you know an enormous forehead or something you know so like that would um set their beauty into into relief you know and that would mark them apart and make them recognizable and this was the concept that I kept thinking about this kind of landscape which was like it, it was amazing but it wasn't a, wasn't pretty it was uh it was still somehow incredible and so I was thinking about that place for a long time um and uh why it had affected me the way that it had done I guess it's like it's a kind of sort of emo nature writing I do now so <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it beautiful? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I write about this in the first chapter of how you have to, you, you to appreciate, um, like this is like brownfield biodiversity, a lot of what I'm looking at, you know, like how a lot of these places can in time come to be very valuable. So the, there's a concept in, in ecology um, or, or the, the open mosaic, habitat which is found on brownfield land um so the idea is that in places where there's sort of areas of tarmac or concrete and there's sort of scrubby bushes and and maybe sort of like burn patches from where kids are setting fire to stuff and maybe there's some old buildings there's lots of different habitats in really close proximity to each other so one one problem with a forest from a biodiversity perspective is that it's just one thing um, and if you have loads of it, then great, you know, you can have wolves, you can have, you know, the things that need need a lot of one thing. But lots of other kinds of creatures, especially invertebrates, need lots of different things and they need it really close together. Um, so they do really well in like really recently cleared land, but then forest tends to take over the spot and then they lose out. Um, so they're constantly shifting around, looking for places where there's like opened the air and there's a place for them to bat. And like lizards like this as well, you know, like reptiles of all sorts. They like to bask and also a bit of water, but then maybe somewhere they can hide um, and they also need to eat. So they need sort of places where 
where everything's kind of a bit messed up and that's what a brownfield place is really good at so in uh i went to a place called ardeer which is also on the west coast of scotland but the same is true of a place called canby wick which is quite near london um and uh Basically, these are abandoned places. One of them was an oil terminal. One of them was a, a dynamite factory. Um, and they've fallen into disarray. Um, and, you know, there's a few teenagers there. Um, in Ardeer, there's like a, a sand quarry on the edge of it. But there's this huge sort of area of land, which is, you know, a, a terrain vague. You know, it's just a very wastelandy kind of place. And so because it's been left like this for such a long time and because there's places like tarmac and brick and so on that's stopping the forest, taking over the site completely, it's actually meant that they've become incredibly like biodiverse hubs for particularly invertebrates. But you have to learn to see them. You know, when you first visit these places, you're like, oh, right, okay. It's just it's just like a rubbish car park with some moss growing on it, you know, and, and a few scrubby trees. But, you know, you have to open your mind a little bit to be able to see it but then once you do you start seeing this everywhere you know you start realizing that that tidy places that look nice um quite often are quite bad for the environment you know like the, we've he heard this a lot you know for for gardeners being told to like leave bits in their garden you know like if you want to help the birds or you want to help you know hedgehogs or something you've got to leave a whole bunch of like brash at the back of your garden and don't clean it up and I think that that goes for sort of the environment on a grand scale you know which is like if things are left to their own devices um you know things can't adapt and they can find a way to survive and you know in, in Orkney it's it's interesting because there have been so many different waves of um I suppose civilizations you know it's been been settled for such a long time um and so but there are ruins here that are you know I think like 5,000 years old um and they uncover new things all the time and I have just become sort of aware of that I don't know of the sort of soil settling on the the remains of the previous people and, and moving on I don't know you, you start sort of seeing things in a different a different time timeline does that make sense <laughs> yes very much so do you think you a slightly loaded question in a way but do you think you see things through a romantic lens yes and no um I think there is, I mean, certainly like the, the science of the, 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 these like open mosaic habitats and so on is, is you know, I didn't come up with the concept. Um, and certainly there's a, a movement in conservation and in ecology to, to recognize kinds of, kinds of biodiversity and, and value that we, we maybe were not so aware of before. Um, and so I don't think that that's necessarily romantic and, and you know like it I think it can become romantic the more you you explain these sites you know like so the more I write about it or the more I talk about it the more maybe I, I whittle down the the argument and it sounds much more clear and obvious than than it would have been at the time you know these places were just sort of neglected it wasn't like people planned for them to become you know wonderful habitats um and I think that's the, that's the appeal. That's why I like it. Um, that, am I romantic? I don't know. I've, I've, I've also been surprised by the response of the book. Like so many people have called it optimistic uh, and, and saying that in a maybe a slightly loaded way to be like, oh, well, maybe it's, 
you know, maybe it's fine. We can keep ravaging the planet. And they're like, oh, I don't know. I uh, definitely not what I'm saying. But I think the parallel that I see is that we didn't used to value um, marshes. And we used to call these wastelands. Like the, the meaning of the word wasteland has changed a lot over the time. <clears throat> and um, it used to be applied to yeah bogs marshes all of this kind of thing this would be marked to map uh, like 17th century like people just found them a waste of space um they didn't think that anything good grow grew there you couldn't build there it was very difficult to farm there or what pain and then now like wetlands are considered to be one of the most valuable habitats that we have and a lot of the damage a lot of damage has been done because people have filled them in or drained them and so on and a lot of conservation um, groups are working to sort of undo that and try and reflood these places and get these wetlands back. And I think kind of it's just like a, a shift of perception that we need to do around brownfield sites. Um, and I think where the romance comes in for me is that I can see that that is interesting, but for it to be attractive to me as a, I don't know as a place to go to a story to tell for for people to listen to I, I felt like I also needed to bring in a sort of larger element so like I think abandoned places are essentially brownfield sites but I needed to find ones which had interesting stories that had human stories attached to them that that would move us in a way too so that we weren't purely talking about um the science um but we also had the sort of in something to to make us feel something you know because that's what these places make me feel yeah definitely yeah um hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well if you have a home but you're not always at home you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So how do you feel about the term rewilding and its relationship between um, our, our conscious improvement, as we see it in inverted commas, of the wild places around us versus conscious abandonment totally i think it's really interesting because uh rewilding the, the the thing with rewilding is that it means something different to so many different people so actually as a concept it's actually quite difficult to, to comment on um i think generally the idea of sort of giving nature her head more over larger areas is amazing and, and that's fantastic. I think what differs between different proponents of rewilding is that like element of control that they want to retain. So if you are rewilding, sometimes people would do this with like conscious aims. They would like to do this or they would like to do that or they want to reintroduce certain animals. Um, and so that is interesting to me because it is still and I, and I don't think it's controversial to say that it is still you know a form of human management it's just you know much more hands-off but it's still being directed at a, a, a high level um 
so I guess that's where I differ. Like I, I talk about in the book um, that abandonment, especially on its largest scale, is rewilding in its most pure form. And it's the kind of kind of rewilding that is very difficult to raise money to do because um, you don't have objectives, you don't have aims, you don't, you know, you're not doing anything. Um, and it might backfire, you know, it, it depends what your aims are, you know, how do you class what backfiring is? So in Estonia, I am, I write about this somewhere else in the book, but I was interested when I went to look at these sort of regrowing um, forests on farther Soviet land, um, they were saying locally that um, they're bringing in herbivores, so they're bringing in cattle to graze to try and stop the forests taking over because as, as I mentioned before you know really dense forest over large areas if you're looking for biodiversity um, isn't necessarily what you want because only forest animals can live there and so what they are doing is they're bringing in cattle to try and graze and keep it at this sort of semi I think they call it like open woodland or, or woodland with meadows um, and the idea is that you have clumps of trees you also have areas of open grass um, you need browsing animals or ruminants to 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 come in and sort of eat lots of stuff and, and keep it half halfway open and stop that succession coming to a sort of a climax, I suppose. Um, but uh, you know, th- th- it depends what you're measuring. That that that's great if you're measuring biodiversity. Um, I don't know. It's it, it's very subjective, and I think to to make it work as a movement, a political movement, you need to have objectives, and that's fine. But I guess what I'm talking about is sort of the a, a, a purer sort of self-directed rewilding or not depending on on what happens and that I think I'm sort of arguing for learning to embrace that we don't need to be in charge all the time um and yeah I don't know how do you how do you fight for that you know fight for fight for hands off that um you know there's a there's a place in this discussion I think for all of these points of view um, I'm just, I'm just interested that there aren't that many um, people, I suppose, buying land and then doing nothing with it. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But no, I'm interested. No, but that's. I mean, you raise extremely interesting points. Like I, I believe really firmly that you know the best thing we can all do is be curious and you know listen. And actually, it's so easy to just think city's bad amazon rainforest good and there's no middle ground um but it's so much more complicated than that and like you say you know it, I, I, you know that you'll speak about this much more eloquently than me but it comes down to what we see as beautiful as well as what we see as useful and protective i mean is a field full of nettles beautiful well maybe not to most people is it useful yeah probably yeah completely i mean it depends uh you know, to the butterflies that lay their eggs on it and then eat nettles, then absolutely, you know, it's as they've lucked out. So, yeah, I, I guess it's that sense of, like, shifting perspective um, that I'm interested in. And I'm trying to, I guess, de... What's the... Like, de-center the human. Um, so, like, my, my previous book was about the colonialism of Australia, and there's not, like, a, a straightforward parallel to draw here, but I do think that what I really got a sense of while writing that book was how so often um, people who did the most damage during the colonial era in Australia often had the best of intentions you know the people who removed children or people who tried to change people's 
religion, change their names, reinvent them and, you know, quote unquote, civilize them, um, often had good intentions, but it had terrible impacts. And I think they would have been horrified, perhaps. I mean, not in all cases, absolutely not. But but many people were working on, uh, char- under what they felt was charitable um, aims. And I think, you know, we, we should take lessons from from this more generally, which is this idea of um, thinking that we always know best um, and that we've got like an aim for an aim for how the planet should look or, you know, what does a healthy planet look like? Like maybe we don't know everything. And, you know, yeah, you know, it's, it's there are lots of different arguments and I think all these voices need to be heard. This is just the point I'm I'm making. <laughs> I think that's totally right. I mean, you know, people in 1905 thought they knew everything. People in 1950 thought they knew everything. And here we sit in 2021 as a society thinking we know everything. And people will look look at us in 50 years and think, you knew nothing about conservation or rewilding or whatever it is. And I guess that's it. It's the pursuit of progress rather than perfection because it perfection doesn't exist. Yeah, we all think we're the good guys and we all think we're fighting the good fight, but it's much more complicated than that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, like, I don't think that we should take from that that we should be like not environmentalists, but just that, um, I don't know, I suppose a hesitance or a hesitance of, of our most interventionist methods. Um, you know, like sometimes, like I, I think a good example is sort of culls. Um, so, for example, I know on a lot of islands they have problems with rats, and then they do culls on that. And I, I think if if your cull can be very effective, and then it's done and it's over, then I can definitely see an argument for that because then it it's like a, a short term pain for a long term gain. But there are, you know, a lot of a lot of culls that sort of seem to go on indefinitely, and you know that that's why they're controversial. You know, because um, I don't know, it's 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 a very um, interventionist way of, of dealing with nature. And are we sure? Are we sure we're doing the right thing? You know that. Um, yeah, I don't. I think. I suppose it's it, one of the things I find most fascinating about this is I don't. I think um, it's not necessarily exactly what you or I might believe. It's more general public perception, and against. And again, I'm I'm assuming here, but. A cull of rats feels very different to a cull of deer or a cull of badgers or something that's kind of fluffy and lovely as we see it. I think that the point I guess I'm trying to make is that it's the human experience and our perception of beauty and value is what motivates us to do certain things. And, you know, we might make a good or a bad decision centered around something that isn't scientific. Right, right. Like we, we it's based on an aesthetic and... And that's fine, but but we should admit that that's what we're doing, you know, um, that that we are sort of sculpting the the earth into a way that we happen to find beautiful, and um, and it and you know it, it also depends on your state of mind of what what that beauty is. Yeah, got it. So I could talk about this for days. Um, so in, with a place like Pripyat, Chernobyl. Mm. I think that, again, assuming, but lots of people or some people might think we should go and clean that up. Let's go and clean that up and sort it out. Is that right? Is that what you think should happen over there? Oh, um, well, certainly, like, 
the cleanup that they did in the immediate aftermath of the of the accident probably did you know do a lot of good and as much as like a lot of the the very contaminated stuff was put in like concrete lined tombs and so on and so at the moment um to to go inside the the exclusion zone for the main part the radiation level is not that high but it is you know concentrated in very specific areas and that that i suppose the cleanup did achieve that um and i think actually a similar case um and and actually maybe for this this cleanup question um is very pressing is um, i talk about newark bay and other bays like it in america and you know around the world where they are very deeply polluted with pcbs and dioxins um and these persistent organic pollutants which are not really going to go away anytime soon you know like they're they're here with us indefinitely and they're extremely toxic um and so i was writing about how um certain types of fish have learned to or evolved to um survive in this sort of toxic soup um, and other species that are there are somehow resistant to it um but the question there is you know do they dig up the silt where it's all settled um dig a big hole line it with concrete seal it up and you know pretend it's not there but then you've destroyed the ecosystem that's grown up in its place um in the intervening years that is very slowly adapting or do you leave it and then you risk um well then you still have a very polluted place and also you risk i don't know if there's a natural disaster or something then it all gets stirred up anyway so in this kind of thing you know it's it's not really there's not an easy answer um and i think sort of the way that i've studied it it might sort of tend towards the in inaction but then maybe it is worth the trade off i don't know it's it's so difficult it's so difficult and i i really don't envy people who have to make these decisions because sometimes they backfire you know there's a case in um there's a case in Wales. Um, I went down to the Swansea Valley where um, it used to be called Copperopolis. They had the huge copper smelting plants and um, huge sort of tips. And the, the ground there is very contaminated with metals. And um, after after that was all over, they started doing sort of remediation. And, and I don't know, a couple of decades ago, they did some remediation of this area. They sort of covered it over, planted trees, all of this kind of thing. It looked a lot better. Um, and now the issue is that it turned out that there were a lot of rare um, metallophyte plants, these plants that can grow in metal soils, and now um, they're of scientific interest because there aren't that many places that they will grow, um, and certainly they're rare. So if your values are that you want to keep biodiversity, then you want to keep these plants, but it means that actually by sort of remediating the area, they've, they've given them less space to grow, and so conservationists that I was speaking to there are well, they were considering sort of scraping up the soil to try and retoxify the ground. Um, they were thinking about like bringing in some examples of the plants from other polluted areas to try and sort of keep them living there. And so we kind of gotten tied up in knots a little bit because there are so many different competing values, especially in conservation. You know, how do you how do you prioritize them? So I just found that was a really interesting thing that maybe they'd end up sort of retoxifying the place just just to 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 keep those plants there yeah it's extremely interesting so ha this is i mean almost an extremely blunt question in a way but 
what is the point you're trying to make with the book? I think my point is um, to bear in mind um, this idea that maybe we don't know best and that sometimes maybe the best thing is to leave things well, well alone. Sometimes, you know, but I, I feel like that is an argument that's not not being made much, you know, like often, and, and as I touched on before, maybe this is to do with fundraising, but people want to know what they can do. People want to roll up their sleeves and they want to fix it. What have we done wrong? Can we fix it? Um, and, you know, maybe we'll dig up invasive species and we'll plant native ones or we'll do this and we want to fix it. And actually, I don't know whether it's just, it's, it's, it's also that is intervention in itself is very costly. You know, it, it, you know, are we just meddling? Should we, should we step back? I think we should bear that in mind. Um, so I'm not necessarily saying that that's what we should always do in the book. I, um, I, I use a, a parallel from, from medicine back in the 19th century, which was um, there was a big fracas um, over what was then known as heroic treatments. So this is like leeches, bleeding, you know, water cures, you know. Um, these things, which are, are very blunt methods and interventionist methods, but were the best that they had at the time. Um, and there was a growing feeling amongst the, the medical establishment or certainly among doctors that it wasn't achieving anything, you know, and often the, the how do you say it, the treatment is worse than the cure. Um, and there was a call from some quarters that maybe we should trust in the healing power of nature, which is something that we hear a lot at the moment about the natural world. And I suppose I suppose my book is a peon too. Um in the end, that debate was solved because we started using um, scientific methods to, to understand what drugs were effective. And then we developed a whole system. And a lot of the, the treatments that were being used that were extremely interventionist and didn't achieve very much, like bleeding, like leeches, were dropped. Um, but... Um, you know, now we're quite careful about what drugs we use and it's always considered a trade-off. Um, and I think, you know, we need a, a similar reckoning when it comes to interventionist methods of, of conservation. You know, like, I'm not saying that, that doing nothing is what we need to do, but I am saying that doing nothing is sometimes better than the methods that we have now. I think that's, yeah, that's really clear. It makes lots of sense especially even when you consider that we only have capacity for so much, right? Sometimes just letting somewhere go and try and recover on its own, you know, we can only do so much, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Really, and, can... and yeah. Sorry. Uh, there's um, also abandonment is happening all, all in its own um, and that we should um, accept that and sort of maybe even embrace that. So the huge areas of farmland abandonment, partly due to demographic change. Um, so just, this is like urbanized, populations but also falling populations in some countries um, we see that a lot in in japan one in eight houses is abandoned now and in spain i think there's some there's more than three thousand abandoned villages and these tend to be extremely rural um, so certain countries are seeing a, a, a big demographic change especially in rural areas and and so there are sort of huge areas of of abandonment on a global scale and it's growing um, and i think 
often when people drive past abandoned places, there's this sort of sense that something should be done about it or somebody should fix it up or something like this. But from, from an environmental perspective, actually, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And um, it's great that we're the that forests are regrowing, you know, this kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, um, it's a, it's a trade off because socially and economically we want people in the countryside. Um, environmentally, it's great to have carbon sinks on land. So it's, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting. So, I mean, one of the things we talked about just before we, we started, you know, press record properly is, I guess this idea of, um, I mean, you talked about the trip reports and things you've read on forums for urban exploration. Why do you think humans romanticize or some humans romanticize abandonment? Oh, it's so such an interesting topic. You know, you go down sort of these, these um, wormholes into, you know, how people feel about ruins and, you know, there was a sort of phase of like Rouenin lust in the, uh, 17th century when people were just obsessed with ruins and would you know have like fake ruins like follies built in their country house estates and um, often there were you know there were famous painters who, who produced um, like visions of, of London and Paris in ruins you know um, I suppose it's very similar to our um, our Armageddon movies our, our post-apocalyptic movies now you know we are ob- obsessed with them um, did you ask uh, the romance of them? Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, interpret it however you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I think it comes back to that that sense of the passage of time, that sense of um, all our you know all our tiny worries are are nothing. You know, one day all this will be dust. I think I think that that's really what the ruin says to us. And like when you are. You you will know this from your from from your time in in Chernobyl, but you know you you go up and you see just this abandonment on an enormous scale, and then you imagine all the lives that were there and the fact that they're not there anymore. You know, I don't I don't know. It is incredibly humbling. It's um I think it's romantic in a sense because I think it makes you feel something, and I don't think we should be scared to feel things I don't think it is necessarily a bad thing to be romantic as long as you're willing to to talk about facts as well I think romance is certainly a place for it because it 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 flags up what is important to us as humans um and so yeah I don't know I think I probably am a romantic and and (laughs) probably unapologetically (laughs) I think that's yeah really fair I mean I definitely fall into that camp too it's you know, please feel free to really disagree with me on this if you do. But for me, it's always felt like the romantic side of the abandoned space is the pursuit of perceived and real risk, danger, adventure, etc. You know, I'm from a not so pretty part of the world. And I sought out these places because they were dark and scary. And, you know, you mentioned before we press record about um first time into an abandoned place. And oh. I, I left after three meters because I was worried. I was worried about zombies and, you know, is there a homeless man in here or, you know, the fear I felt in that space. Totally. And all I did was I climbed through a beer shaft into an old cinema, you know, and that was it. I was out three meters later. And I yeah. Think, yeah. That sense of like doing something you're not meant to. I mean, 
I don't know. I think a lot of people are probably braver about this than, than I am. But certainly I was always like a pretty good girl growing up. You know, I don't like to be in trouble, you know. <laughs> and so just like disobeying signs that say no trespassing, it, it, it took quite a lot to do it. And often you feel alone and, and, and you know if you're if you're alone in a place you, that that it makes it somehow so much more frightening I don't know why but we're social animals you know I, I, I've, I've worked with horses a lot and you really notice that with them you know if you take them out on their own they're really jumpy and they're like different animals and that's what I feel about myself you know if I'm on my own in a place I invent all sorts of frightening things and it is hard to make yourself go into somewhere where you're not meant to be um, but that perceived risk I think is is also equally why you want to do it and that idea of having to look after yourself and be careful and and all of that is extremely freeing and I think it gets gets you know it's a similar feeling to I don't know certain kinds of extreme sports or something like this it's you put yourself through the the psychological mill yeah yeah and you know humans are narrative creatures right we're we're motivated by story we're motivated by you know, campfire tales. We've been doing that for as long as we could communicate. Um, and you said something really interesting earlier, talking about. Sorry, you have to remind me the name of the west coast of Scotland islands. Oh, um, uh, eased out the Slate Islands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you said they're like something out of a fantasy, and I instantly thought, well, that's it's narrative. You know, you're, you've created a story without being told one, mm-hmm. and you you are now inventing a narrative for this place. And I think that that's so true of these abandoned places is they, I mean, you know, I should ask you really, but they they just convey, there's so much history in there and there's so much fantasy. There's so much story. How can they not be, you know, interesting and engaging and thought provoking? Right. But uh, I think like, that's a really good point that the sort of narrative that we impose on things, like you recognize these scenes partly from, from, popular culture like what you were saying before about like feeling like zombies are about to come out at any moment because you recognize these places you've been there before admittedly only through film but um you know the the thing is when you find out the one thing I found disappointing while I was writing my book was that loads of these really beautiful places that I'd seen pictures of you know like and god there are so many abandoned asylums on the internet you know and then when you look into them of course they're not you know there couldn't be enough of asylums in the world for all these um, urban explorers but you know you see these decontextualized images all the time and often they don't have a location partly because people don't want them to get spoiled because they are beautiful you know it's that like endless thing with travel journalism do you actually say where you are um but uh you know so you see them without stories and then you 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 impose this this very moving emotive narrative on them and then what I found was often when I sort of dug down into this place is that it would be a lot more prosaic and a lot less interesting and so um, I did sort of investigate a lot a lot of locations that didn't end up working for my book either because I didn't think that they sort of added anything to this discussion I didn't want it to be a series of trip reports I wanted each of them to be you know uh a discussion of something else. So Swan or the Abandoned Island where the cattle are is a dis- discussion of what happens to domesticated animals after we stop caring for them, sort of feral creatures. Um, when do they become wild again? Or um, in, in Montserrat, um, where the capital city, Plymouth, um, has been evacuated, um, I used the, the, the volcanic activity of the island, the pyroclastic flows that, that overtook, overcame the, the capital city as a way to look at human impact on, 
on the atmosphere because volcanoes um, have an effect on climate, but we have a much greater one. Um, uh, so each of them had to sort of, not only did they have to be interesting examples, those stories that stood up that are real and not ones that have sort of arrived on the internet, but um, they also had to tell us something bigger. Um, and it, it took a really long time to sort of put that argument together. Um, but I, th- I think I got there in the end. <laughs> yeah. No, and whilst, you know, the kind of, uh, I guess, intellectual and cerebral pursuit of this kind of thing is what gets me out of bed each morning, I, I'm also really interested in the how. I think, you know, the, the method of getting to these places and exploring them is, you know, yes, we have Google. Yes, we live in a Zoom world right now, but it's not good enough, is it? And we have to go there. You know, how are you physically making these journeys and explorations, I would say, happen? Um, I think a certain amount of uh, research in advance, just to make sure that you're going to a place that still exists and the story is true and all of this kind of thing. But I think in the end, I always had to come down to the fact that um, you just have to go there. Um, you know, you can you can plan these things till the cows can come home, but but you know, there's only so much you can find online. There's only so much you can find in books. You do, especially in places like abandoned places, which almost by definition tend to not be very well documented. Um, You need to go there and see how you can get in, find someone who can let you in or or something. You know, sometimes I did team up with um, local urban explorers, like in Patterson, New Jersey. I think... um, especially in urban environments and you know I'm a woman so just the I think going into a place where I'm a foreigner and I don't know anyone and I don't know what I'm going to find there on my own I, I don't know I just from a that didn't seem to me to be like a psychological risk that did seem to be like a physical risk and and so it, I found it better to, to find somebody locally who actually knew the site so I went to, in Patterson with a guy called Wheeler Antibanaz um, who does a lot of urban exploring and he kind of showed me around and that was great um because it was you know a huge maze of these abandoned mills um and also he he knew quite a lot about them so that was great um and a similar thing well i had guides for a couple of places like in the exclusion zones um i went through i guess official channels so in montserrat i had a, a local guide um who Basically, you have a radio and the volcano observatory is constantly watching seismic activity. And you've got a, I think we had a 45 minute window to go into the um, exclusion zone where you're in kind of the path. Should the volcano erupt, you would be in the path. So um, you're there and you have to leave your car running and the doors open facing the direction where you came from. I think you've got 90 seconds should it erupt. But it hadn't erupted in, you know, several years um it's not dormant yet but they were like well we sometimes it spikes um and it is sort of a um infamously um unpredictable volcano in fact the volcano that erupted was not the volcano that they'd been watching for years it was one that just popped up and you know it it had never been there before and instead of (laughs) instead of the volcano that they'd been watching suddenly a whole new mountain arrived and um it was you know the the city well town was directly in its path um so you do yeah that was that was really interesting and i i wouldn't have been able to do that i think without um a local guy um he had the radio and yeah i mean 
I don't know. It depends on your 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 level of risk. But um, given that I was writing about it, I thought I'd, I'd go through that one officially and hand in my passport and so on. And uh, I did yeah. the same thing with, with Chernobyl, which um, I, I had a local guide and she sorted my paperwork. And she was also a translator because I wanted to speak to people um, inside the zone itself because there are a s- small number of um, some mostly or self-settlers who, who live there. Um, and I knew that I wanted to talk to talk to people who lived in the zone who had kind of moved back in unofficially but had been there ever since just like why and what changes they'd seen and what wildlife they saw so um that was really helpful to go in with a with a a guide and a translator who knew people and was was friendly with people on the ground so i think it's kind of a mix of being like insanely unprepared and just seeing what i can do which is what i did at the zone rouge looking for that the chemical weapons burn site which was I'd asked a few people where it was. There were a few science papers about it, but none of it gave away the location. Um, and then when I emailed the scientists to ask them, nobody really wanted to tell me, or they'd be like, oh, I don't know. Um, they just wouldn't answer the question. Um, but I found some records that described the name of the farm um, that must be the where the weapons had been gathered. So I knew that the burn site must be somewhere close. It just said, took into the forest not far from this farm. Um, so I found the farm on satellite view and then, well, I flew to France. And then the night before I was meant to be going to the site, I was like, I've got to find this place. I don't know where it is. It's just somewhere in the forest and the forest is huge. Um, and was looking at satellite images and on Google Earth, you can't really see it. It just looks like a normal clearing. But then I switched to Bing and Bing had been taken at a different degree time of year and there's this like purple thumbprint in the woods and was like that's it that's the spot you know so um good thing I found it otherwise we'd just have been driving around in the French forest on forestry tracks for days and never find anything so also it was quite set back off the off the tracks that go through the woods anyway so yeah like a, a good a good amount of um luck and some sleuthing and some hiring of of, of local people who know much better than me <laughs> yeah which you know is the perfect example because the message is important the book's important the end product is important but the journey the vehicle is i mean at least half the game right <laughs> yeah i think so i yeah. think i think that's part you know partly why i do it you know is you want you want to get excited about things and you need to find that particular sweet spot for for yourself what motivates you and i think kind of um i guess going to these weird places and finding out about them and and also finding some something that 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 surprised me and often that was the eco ecological aspect of it you know finding these weird ways that things were adapting um they're not always good news stories but they are always you know not always lost stories and i think that that i found i found really engaging yeah i can definitely relate to that cool um so what is it that motivates you i don't know god i just and you find it's, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult psychological work to find out what, what motivates yourself. I don't know. People do ask that. I think I'm, I'm interested in, in nature. I'm interested in, um, in our interaction with nature. Um, so I, <laughs> I'm interested in nature and I'm interested in that sort of that 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 sort of uh, how would you describe it the the intertidal zone almost between humans and animals and and the natural world generally 
um, and that sort of weird give and take um, sort of in this book it's about territory but you know I've, I've worked with with working animals before and I'm really interested in the way we interact and the way we we communicate across species barriers or not um, and I think that that's this this book is one one way that I've chosen to explore that which is sort of how we impact on the natural world and also how it responds right back nice yeah and then um i just have two two final questions i guess um i always ask them but what scares you <laughs> i uh i think i touched on this earlier like i i it's not that i'm particularly physically brave but i'm so much more cowardly about like being in trouble you know like, I'm, I'm scared of i'm scared of people and i'm scared of i don't know like that's what i found hardest about this um this book was like the constant feeling that i was going somewhere i wasn't meant to that i was constantly breaking rules or or climbing fences um you know and i i, I don't think that i am brave at all i think i'm scared by a lot of of stuff you know and um putting my finger on exactly what scares me is hard because I think that I'm scared by a lot of things and like constantly having to like chivy yourself along to go and 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 do things that you're interested in and that you'll regret not doing and all of this kind of thing like like when I went to when I went to that place in France and then we were standing I, I took my partner and we were standing around this and it looks like this like sylvan glade from the fairy tale and then around it it's got this insane like military compound fencing with like razor wire <laughs> it's like do not go you know it's all in french it's like forbidden forbidden um do not approach and it was like oh i'm gonna have to go under that fence and i don't want to <laughs> i just knew if i'd gone all the way to france and then not even not even gone in you know that that i would just regret it for ages and i was like i have to see what what it's like in there and so like I, I found a hole under the fence and a badger <laughs> badger had probably made it something that kind of size i'm quite small so that that's okay it was like on my back like pushing myself onto it and i was like oh through the arsenic soil why am i doing this <laughs> i get it and sort of immediately panic but um yeah i don't know i'm scared all the time but then you you have this like constant voice in the back of your mind being like you should do it you should do it come on <laughs> well maybe i mean there's a huge difference between bravery and courage isn't it? i think like you know courage is moving forward in the presence of fear i guess so maybe courage courageous definitely <laughs> a courageous person um, well we'll see we'll see i think you might not <laughs> believe that if you knew me <laughs> <laughs> um what brings you hope oh so much stuff I think that yeah, that writing this book has just filled me with I don't know. I like I, I I I have swung so extremely from terrible pessimism and like feeling like the world cannot be saved and there's nothing we can do to feeling like oh everything's fine and we all have to stop panicking. You know, it's I can't I can't control my emotional response to it um, at all. But I think like a lot of people, I think a lot of people working in 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 environmental areas at all will have a similar thing which is some days it all seems fine and maybe if we just if we just get things under control a little bit you know it will be okay and then the next day you just feel it's completely 
impossible. I find that my response, like I've I've read quite a few of the big books that are are sort of horrifying about climate. Like I, I'm thinking particularly of David Wallace Wells' book, um, the um, Uninhabitable Earth, which is um, so bleak. It's it's like a disaster movie, but it's all real. It, he looks at the um, the worst case scenarios um, of climatology um, and essentially picks apart over the course of the book like why everything like everything is lost and we're all going to die and we've ruined the planet and it's happening now and it is it's an amazing book um and he 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 does say at the beginning you know he's like this is the worst case scenario but but i'm scared and i think we should all be scared this is a big deal Uh, he starts starts by saying something like it's much much worse than you realize and um you know that it's it is an amazing book but I didn't come out and I'm, I'm, I'm glad I've read it and I don't you know like it's all based on on science um but I came out of that feeling like well there's no point in anything like I can't fix it you know what do we do why am I fretting about you know taking a plane somewhere you know so that kind of um that kind of sort of attitude towards it I think works very well for a lot of people you know it really fires them up to do something whereas for me it makes me feel hopeless um and you know I had to keep putting it down and then be like okay and then the next day we'd dawn and and then you know I hadn't died yet uh, and then it, it made me sort of question question it you know and that's not what what the intention should be so I think like for me finding hope in the environmental narrative is so necessary not because I think we should be blindly optimistic but but because I think we should feel like things can be saved if we act now you know if we try and live more lightly on the earth if we try and you know give the planet its its opportunity to 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 recover and you know things like carbon sinking and 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 forestry growth on on such an enormous scale um it can play a big role if we're also not continuing to burn fossil fuels into the environment you know like there are the the ways that um the planet can recover are are there they're present and they're they're trying to happen all the time but we need to to give it opportunity so i think i think that's where i find find hope which is uh, yeah i read this um science paper when uh, it's talking about carbon sinking and it said well trees have already been invented you know just like the <laughs> idea of like the our our route to salvation is already here with us on the planet um that gives me a lot of of hope and that has helped me i get i suppose i like, get to sleep at night nice yeah all right we'll leave it there thank you thank you so much for having me on Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall and is released in association with Acast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and keep up to date on Instagram at theadventurepodcast.